This is On Your Radar, Series 2, Back to School in the New Normal. This is a podcast series featuring the expert medical and clinical staff at Rosecrans. I'm John Williams from WGN Radio, and this series explores the fears, anxieties, and concerns for educators, students, and parents alike as the school year begins, following a year of hybrid schedules and distance learning. So let's introduce our guest, Dr. Tom Wright, MD, is a psychiatrist and addictionologist. He is the Rosecrans Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Tom, welcome back. How are you? Thanks much. Thanks for having us. I'm great. Thanks. And Dr. Adrian Adams is here, MD, the medical director at Rosecrans at the Griffin Williamson campus. Uh, The Griffin Williamson campus is in the northwest part of the state, serves about 6,000 clients annually. We're talking young people here. And the total number of people that Rosecrans services in a given year, Dr. Wright, do you have a ballpark number for us? How many people will you all see annually across the system? This last year was about 46,000 separate individuals. Is that a, a high number or low number? I'm, I'm thinking the pandemic must have factored in somehow. Um, it's about the same because we were able to do a lot of um, virtual uh, counseling as well as psychiatry meetings. So our numbers stayed about the same and went up about 2.5% from the year before. Our goal is always to serve more people every year, and we achieve that despite the pandemic. In this podcast, we want to talk about normal adolescent behavior versus problematic adolescent behavior. I suppose this could be very illuminating for parents. Maybe educators have more contact with various types of kids and you know various degrees of development, but even they're maybe wondering, okay, now what am I dealing with here and how different is it this year versus last year? Um, where do we start, Dr. Tom? Uh, in general, what do you think teachers should expect in the classroom as the school year gets going? Well, I think there's a, a lot of things that teachers need to sort of take into account. Number one is that uh, they're not used to being together again. A big part of being a teacher is not just teaching your English course or your science course. It's, you know, classroom management and behavioral management. They haven't been to, been together for a while, so they're going to want to be social. They're going to want to be together. They're going to want to be talking a lot more. And you're going to have to balance sort of allowing them to do that with getting the academics done, too. And then certainly, you know, sort of the schedule and the structure that is present in a face-to-face classroom is different than the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the less structure that they might have, you know, if they're doing virtual learning. So uh, teachers are going to have to give the students a little bit of time to get back to used to that structure again. And I guess the teachers have their own agenda. They've got things they've got to get done. But from a psychological standpoint, a little looser or more forgiving a structure, at least to start, is, is your advice, huh? Yeah, I think in the beginning, too, they need to sort of just, they need to realize that this is an adjustment for everybody. Teachers are going to need that, too. Teachers are going to need some support and administrators of schools. I was on a school board for a number of years, and, you know, we're going to have to take into account sort of what the teachers' needs are at that point, too. Uh, You know, many of these teachers are having to go into schools. Children under 12 can't be vaccinated yet, and so these teachers are going into a place that, you know, are going to have a lot of people that are unvaccinated. So they're going to need their support and the support of their administration and uh, the school board behind them, too. And yet, Dr. Adams, I suppose another thing the teachers are going to have to do besides teach is also reestablish boundaries, rules and regulations. This is the way the kids are going to have to learn to live again, right? Oh, I totally agree. And I to- and I agree with Tom. I mean, definitely this is, we're embracing a new world, new post-pandemic world. And so I think for 
both the teachers as well as the parents, we have to kind of recognize this is the new normal. So I think one of the ways that they can help with the classroom even is just like illustrating, you know, marks of six feet distances for the kids. I would say making the mask more of, you know, part of the uniform, but also make it more fun. I would say maybe encouraging like creative mask day for kids so that kids are actually able to realize that, you know, it's part of their clothing attire and accessory. I don't want to get too much into school policies here, but in general, though, I suppose you would draw a hard line there. If that's the rule, if that's the way we're going to safely educate, then the mask is not optional, right? Yes, and without getting into policy, each school district is definitely its own um, rules. But if that is part of that particular policy, I would say embracing the mask as far as making it part of just everyday clothing would be the best thing for kids to once again kind of normalize it and not make it into something that's more of a power struggle. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at is how do you sell it? <laughs> and if it's I'm the boss and you have to wear the mask, Tom, that's probably not the best approach. Well, I think kids understand that schools have ru- rules and that they're, for the most part, their parents need to support that. I think parents need to just be careful whether they have a particular opinion about it now that they most parents are always saying that you need to follow the school rules and that parents need to keep their own feelings about it, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of secret or hidden and make sure that they uh, support their kids in following the school rules. I want us to be talking in this podcast about adolescent behavior versus problematic adolescent behavior. So normal versus something that's a red flag. And I guess what we're really thinking about is in light of the pandemic. But maybe before we go too deeply there, let's just talk about maybe what it would have been like in 2019 or 2018. What are some general parameters? How does an educator or a parent know this is a kid pushing boundaries and this is a kid who's crossed the line and we need to intervene more? Uh, Tom, where, where do we start on that? Well, I think what we often tell people to look for is big changes in behavior that you see over a month or two period of time, whether because of depression, you know, perhaps substance use, anxiety, things like that, changing in eating habits, changing in grooming, which they often, uh, teachers might see, not getting homework done, um, you know, maybe being a little bit more oppositional in the classroom, uh, watching for changes. And and oftentimes teachers know, spend more time oftentimes with the kids' during their waking hours than parents do. So sometimes can be a little bit more sensitive. And we have to realize that teachers have sort of great access to what are, what's going on in our, our kids' uh, minds and their lives. And, uh, and, and teachers have to be comfortable talking to them uh, about that when they're able to. But Adrian, some of that's normal, right? Changes in behavior and attitude and surliness or whatever. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean the kid's going through a problem, does it? Well, you know, I think it's more so shades of gray, I like to say. So definitely adolescents are trying to identify themselves and determine their own uh, adulthood. So definitely they want to start being more independent and making some of their own decisions and choices. But I think we are more concerned if we're noticing that there's a complete change in behavior or if there's a new friend group or if they're more isolative. Now, of course, teenagers definitely like being alone somewhat and being in their rooms. But if it's more so... uh, their flat-out refusal, and so they're not doing dinners with you anymore, Uh, they're not inviting friends over, they're no longer doing their homework, and they're no longer engaging with you as a parent. So I think it's really important for, as a parent, and I'm a parent, 
to definitely try to always be open and kind of check in with kids and see what's going on. Well, if some of these changes take place and they're normal, it's a kid growing up, it's them exploring their independence. Maybe it's the speed with which some of these attitudinal changes start to come forward. Do I hear either of you saying that? I mean, if it's sudden, if it's, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Tom, do you have any thought about that? No, I agree. I think that's a that's a good observation. You know, if it's a sudden change, a relatively sudden change over a couple of weeks or a month, that's different than sort of the developmental process right. that you sort of see coming and that, you know, kids might be in for three or four years. But if you see a sudden change in any of those things, that's the time, you know, to sort of question a little bit more. And uh, Dr. Adams pointed out something really important that I know she does with her own kids and um, that we know through studies that uh, that talking to your kids early on, you know, when they're maybe in middle school or grade school about it's okay to share with you my your emotions. You know, it's okay to talk about drug use. It's okay to talk about those things. And having that relationship with them early on, so when they do get a time where they may be trying something or into something that's going to, or feeling something that's going to be difficult, they'll have sort of those open roads of communication. There was one great study, you know, that we talk about a lot at Rosecrans, and that's the study that showed uh, that children that have uh, dinner with their family four or more nights a week are about half as likely to develop a substance use problem than children who don't. And that doesn't mean just eating with them is important. What's important about that is they're talking. You know, they're open, they're talking, they can share their feelings, and that's what kids need a place to do. I wonder if parents get too caught up in looking for the smoking gun, you know, so I found marijuana or I saw some drug paraphernalia and therefore now I know. I wonder how critical that is to them determining that we really have a problem here. Well, certainly, if you find something, you know that that would be that would be indicate that there's some kind of problem. How big that is, that's the next question. And if you find something like that, if you see something in their backpack or in their room, or or you smell it coming out of their room, then that's that's a point of time where you need to sort of do a little bit more assessment and gather a little bit more information. You know, and we do know that there's kids that at some point of time, or maybe ourselves, even when we were kids, we maybe tried something and it really wasn't a pattern of behavior and hadn't developed into addiction. But was just trying, and this is this is where parents need to jump in and start learning more, you know, about what's going on with them, and perhaps pulling in a, a, a professional, like perhaps at Rosecrans, and trying to pull someone in to see is this a problem or is this something that we just need to make an early intervention on in order to prevent yeah. something from getting worse. I mean, that's it. Just because the kid is experimenting with something like this doesn't mean they're ready for a six-week uh, Rosecrans stay. Correct. Oh. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Why do you say, oh, definitely? (laughs) Well, you know, and I think the big thing here is to make sure you first have the conversation and not just jump to conclusions. I mean, possibly that could be experimentation. So I think uh, a lot of times for kids, if they feel like they're being yelled at or, uh, I don't want to say bullied, but uh, uh, push that, they're going to definitely kind of shut down. So you definitely want to engage in a conversation. Just kind of find out, like, what does this mean about the marijuana use? You know, how did you get involved? What is it doing for you? Just to get understanding, was this just an experimentation first time, or have they maybe been using it? And if so, are they using it because there are other underlying issues, at which point I do agree getting a professional involved. Uh, I know at Rosecrans we have our early intervention programming, which typically I think is really helpful just for those kind of kids that maybe have mild use. 
You know, I'm also wondering about the kid who doesn't do that or before they get to that, but they still have the feelings that would lead a child to do something like that. That's almost more important here, isn't it? I mean, if you find drug paraphernalia and that's the symptom, well, what's what's driving that? What's what's the cause? What is it that's bothering this young person? Um, be nice that we we're able to have that conversation before I notice the drug use, right, or, or the alcohol abuse. Um, any ideas along those lines, Dr. Tom, about how you sort of nip it in the bud? Well, you're exactly right. You have to get to the bottom of what it is. <clears throat> Sometimes, you know, substance use in particular can be a symptom, or oftentimes, I should say, <clears throat> it can be a symptom of another illness, such as depression or, you know, what what Adrian and Dr. Adams and I see in our field all the time is that often it's a symptom of trauma, you know, PTSD, some horrible trauma in their past that they're using drugs to help sort of forget or to mask over that trauma. So you have to see is the substance use uh, just living there on its own as a substance substance use disorder that doesn't have anything associated that's fueling it or stopping it or hurting it, you know, or is it something that's really a symptom of something else, like just trying to cover up depression or anxiety or trauma? And that's where the professionals need to come in. And that's partly what we would assess, you know, at Rosecrans or other places, you know, we would assess that to see whether kind of their, to develop their treatment plan, whether that's an early intervention program like Dr. Adams mentioned, or whether that's residential programming, programming that we offer also. What would a teacher notice, or a school counselor, or somebody, a professional at school? What do they see, and when do they pick up the phone or send the email? How do they yeah. know? Uh, well, you know, I was thinking about that, and I definitely feel that there is a population of kids that are maybe not so depressed or anxious, but also just have low self-esteem. And so typically they might get involved with maybe the drug culture or other substance users just because they're trying to fit in. So I think typically if teachers are noticing kids that – Typically, we're pretty good students, and suddenly there's a shift in their grades, or maybe they're noticing a change in their um, hygiene, which is different from how they normally are, or if they're noticing that they're falling asleep in class, which in the past, possibly that was not an issue. They're just noticing those kind of, yeah, I would say vegetative symptoms or signs. That would be something a teacher could uh, would because for a teacher to maybe contact a parent or but talk to But that might be child. a symptom that the child is abusing something, right? It could be. But if the child, if you determine this is a kid with low self-esteem, they're not popular, they're quirkier, they're, they, they, they're not fitting in very well. Mm-hmm. Um, before it even comes to that, I wonder if we could advise a teacher on how to nurture that kid. Maybe I'm asking too much now, right? <laughs> but I mean, I'm yeah. I'm trying to sort of see where this potential for a problem is. Oh, yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, I have a family of teachers, a cousin, aunts uh, that are teachers. So definitely, I think teachers are our first line workers for kids. But mm-hmm. I think it also depends on hopefully the school system. And I'm a real big proponent of schools having a lot of programming for kids. So various after school activities, clubs, Sports teams, but not all kids are sports teams. I know that I was kind of uh, uh, clunky with that, so I'm not a good sports person. But definitely I enjoyed other things like chess club or those kind of things. So I think, once again, maybe encouraging children to get involved in activities of interest. And if we have that particular after-school programming, that could be something. I'm always a big proponent of kids doing things, um, even off school, such as, like, Oh, YMCA's or park district activities, Uh, sometimes, you know, other Girl Scouts, Boy Mm -hmm. Scouts, 
activities just so they can maybe meet different kids and maybe find their niche. I think a lot of us carry around as adults to this day a kind word that a teacher or an adult gave to us when we were vulnerable as kids too. You know, they just said something and it reinforced maybe some hope you have that you're okay or you're going to get through this. And I suppose if teachers would just be, and I suspect they are appreciative of that and would be, especially right now, I mean, here's maybe where this conversation segues to from just what the normal issues are to what is a especially acute now, Dr. Tom. I suppose if you had radar before 2020, you'd better have it now if you're an educator. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely, especially with the changes that we're going to see in the kids that they come back. We ask a lot of our teachers, I have to say, you know, and I'm amazed about how they come forward, you know, and sort of meet the challenges that we do. But, you know, uh, Dr. Adams is right. You know, there's a lot that happens in school, and kids um, don't necessarily get better, you know, in a half-hour, 45-minute uh, office appointment with their psychiatrist. They get better in the context in which they're living. So a supportive educator, a supportive person that they see every day, being involved in a group that helps build their self-esteem and their self-confidence at school is one of the most important interventions that uh, a parent or a kid could uh, receive. I'm sorry, doctor, who are you saying does that? Does the teacher do that or do they reach out to other students and say, let's embrace somebody who might be struggling? How does that actually happen? I think it can happen with a teacher, but it also happens in the uh, sort of the milieu or the environment of the school, sort of what's available, you know, outside of that particular teacher. And the teacher can help guide them. You know, the educator can help guide them. It's also what's available in the school. Um, And there may be school counselors or school nurses, you know, certainly there's activities that are going on that the kid could get involved with also. I wonder if the supervisors of schools, the teachers, the principals, the counselors are standing back and saying, how is our school different this year um, in terms of support services for the kids? Kids normally walk in with issues. This year, it's even more so. So how have we adapted because the kids have changed as well? I I wonder, I I suspect they have that conversation with themselves, and one hopes that the school's are more sensitive or, I don't know, have other resources to help the kids. Does that make sense, Doctor? It definitely does. I know that a lot of the teachers over the summer have actually been participating in in services as well as different training programs. My husband is actually um, working on his master's for teaching, so I know he's been involved in quite a few of initiatives at his school district, uh, even with diversity inclusion education as well, just so that you know, as they go back to the classroom in full in-person sessions, that everyone's more aware and more sensitive and more caring environment for everyone. I wonder if the symptoms look different, look any different, if the behavior is any different. Um, Dr. Tom, do you have thoughts about that, 2021 versus 2020? Well, I have read a little bit about that. One of the things, I, I can tell you one of the benefits of COVID is the the amount of bullying uh, that kids have received in school has gone way down. Well, that's obvious because 
they're not in school anymore. And there's been a beneficial effect from that, too, because there's been a lot less bullying, you know, even cyberbullying when kids not have been in classes. So I think that's something that uh, educators and uh, schools, I, I really, and I don't want to focus too much on the teacher because the teacher needs to be focused on educating, but their mm-hmm. school system needs to provide the services to be able to monitor and respond to the rest. So I'm sure that, uh, some of the bullying is going to pick up again. There's little doubt that that's going to happen, and I know a lot of schools are preparing for that, again, having everybody back in. So the kids are back in school, though, and now they've got to learn to socially acclimate and follow the rules. We started there and we began this conversation. Talk a little bit more about that. What's reasonable, Dr. Tom, to expect from the kids as they come back out of some version of hybrid learning? You know, certainly they're going to have to, many of them are going to have to relearn how to socialize and how to get along with other kids, how to share, you know, depending on the age, you know, uh, that they are. Um, and, you know, sort of how to help and how to work together as a team again. They've been working sort of on their own and maybe in their small family unit, but they need to work together as a team and as a community, and that's something that we've um, isolated them from a bit over the last year, year and a half, and so schools are going to play a big part in helping them learn to do that again. I wonder what that means for any given student, like will the popular kid be less popular, less outgoing? Will the sullen kid be really reticent? Now I wonder... I wonder what that it's looks an inter- like. Interesting thought. It's a chance to reset, isn't it? You know, for some kids, it may be a good opportunity for some kids to reset and sort of choose to be a little bit different and um, and sort of sort of sort of redo who they were in the school. Yeah, I wonder if that's advice to the parents too. You know, this is a time to engage your kid or encourage your kid, huh? It's time for a new start. You could certainly use this as that. I think that's a great idea. It's a great idea, Adrian. I wonder how easy that is to do, how easy that is for the parent to say appropriately and for the kid to actually execute it if they even appreciate that sentiment. That's kind of nuanced, isn't it? It is, but, you know, I'm really hopeful. I feel like with the new school year, I think a lot of us are excited about returning back to the classroom as well as the parents are excited about their kids returning back to their environment of being with friends. So I feel like it's a time as Dr. Tom's mentioned a time for resetting. And I know a lot of the kids that I've worked with are excited about that prospect. I know a lot of the principals are engaging parents and kids in a lot sooner. At least at my kids' school, we've already had like several open houses and the school year's just begun. So I feel like this is a time that we've learned, if anything, we've learned to be more with open communication, more transparency, and more interaction. Because I, I think with the pandemic, we were all so isolated that now that we're able to be together again, I feel like we're embracing it. I like what you just said. I mean, here I am, Mr. Doom and Gloom, but maybe, look, the kids probably want to go to school more this year than ever before. So maybe this is really an exciting time, a positive opportunity. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. It definitely is. Um, I, fa- I mean, of course, there are some kids that really enjoyed the isolation, but I would say for the most part, most of my patients that I've worked with, they're really excited about seeing their friends again in person. I, so I this is a positive time. I know for some kids that are starting high school, they're excited to actually be able to do their high school year in person and actually attend to some of the group activities that they weren't allowed to do the prior year. So, And I suppose uh, for any high school kid or family going back to school, yeah, allow for it to be awkward, allow for it to – this isn't a crisis that you're scared or nervous or angry or whatever the emotion is. That's, that's normal for anybody starting a new environment. 
Dr. Tommy, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a good observation. You know, absence makes the heart grow uh, fonder. You know, they've been gone for, you know, a year, some maybe a year and a half. And uh, they're probably very excited and understand sort of what a school and what a, that environment, what a gift it can be, you know, to have this after you've not had it for a while. So I think it is a great chance to reset and restart. And you just, just and I, I'm sure a lot of kids are going to have a lot better appreciation of what uh, it offers them than they did before. One last thing we haven't talked about, and that's the maturation of kids. As, do you suppose that took a year off as well, that the kids haven't matured the way they normally would, Tom? I think in some ways, I, no. Well, yes and no. I would say largely no. You know, the neurodevelopment of the brain is going to continue on, um, whether they had it or not. They don't have access necessarily to the interactions that might uh, help them learn as much. But uh, certainly virtually, we do know at least doing telecounseling or sort of virtual counseling that it works very well for kids. They're used to sort of communicating through texting or through a screen. So I think largely that can continue to, I think there's some in-person stuff that, uh, that requires a little bit kind of different interaction. And I think that will sort of improve too, but I think largely kids are going to be driven forward to develop um, no matter what. One last thing then, let's go back to the start of this conversation, adolescent behavior versus problematic behavior. So, so, Adrian, walk us through just again some of the red flags or things to pay attention to, areas of concern for the adults in the children's lives. Okay, yeah. So, you know, once again, I think everyone's going to have a slight adjustment. So, I think, you know, a little anxiety is pretty normal. I think, you know, that's fine. But if you're looking a month into things and you're noticing that your child is still having considerable anxiety with school, they're having what I would call more somatic symptoms of increased headaches, stomach aches, kind of refusals for going to school, that could be a concern. If you're noticing that their sleeping patterns are changing, uh, they're hard to wake up. If you're noticing hygiene changes, change in friends, you're, they're actually missing classes at times, even though you're sending them to school. Uh, and homework, you know, I think that's the big thing. If we're noticing a change in their academic functioning after, you know, a month or two, that would be a big concern. And if the child is ex- demonstrating those things or exper- feeling those things, <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily mean that they're using drugs or alcohol. It means those are the things they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Attend to them either way. I mean, don't say, okay, I didn't discover any drug paraphernalia. You still have these issues. Um, is there any way to know if those feelings, if that evidence, if you will, leads to drug and alcohol use or no, it, it could be separate from one from the other? Well, you know, I think either way is going to be really important to seek professional help. I know a lot of families will start with their pediatrician or primary care. I, you know, and that's a good avenue. Oftentimes, pediatricians and primary care physicians are doing screening tools, and so they're able to assess if they need to refer the child on to, say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist for more of an in-depth evaluation. But, you know, I advocate heavily a lot of times for mental health it's really important you know mental health is i mean it's gosh what can, tom what can i say about mental health it's 
I think, you know, what I hear when, when this conversation comes up on the radio, Tom, you're the expert now, but um, we tend to acknowledge and accept the physical ailments, those for which we can see the problem and prescribe a pill or a procedure. Mental health is not so easily seen, is not so easily observed, and maybe as a result doesn't get the sort of fair treatment that it should. That's my free ad, uh, observation. Well, I think you're still you're talking about, and what Dr. Adams is too, is sort of the stigma that still may uh, surround, you know, mental illness, which we're working on it a great deal, you know. So there's a lot of people that sort of, you know, have been offering up, they're talking about their own mental illness to help sort of release the stigma. So there's the, stink, the stigma of mental health in general, but oftentimes the stigma is a little bit bigger about what caused the problem. You know, like I had said before, trauma is a big issue with many adolescents, and it causes a lot of other mental health issues that may be underlying. So what the trauma was itself can sometimes be something and that that one does not want to talk about. So it may be just the emotions associated with that mental illness that causes the stigma itself. Is a pandemic sufficient trauma? Is that something in and of itself like that, Tom? Well, I think someone could experience it from illness themselves. Certainly, if you had COVID or you had a family member that was very ill or died of it, you know, we have, what, 600-some thousand deaths from it. All those people have family members that, uh, uh, that you know, would have experienced some traumatic event with their, uh, you know, with their loved one dying. Yeah. Uh, but there's also, you know, there's, there's stress in people's homes. And once you send kids home, you know, and, that, and, and families that aren't equipped necessarily to do home education, education are forced to sort of watch them. Some families have had to quit their jobs, you know, in order to watch over kids. That's a very stressful environment, too. And so sometimes just a difficult family environment at home can cause a lot of other difficulties for the kids, too, just by having to be there without the release from school. Oh, yeah. right. right. And there has been, uh, interestingly enough, an uh, uptick of eating disorders that they found from the pandemic. So actually more adolescents have have a rise in uh, eating disorders. Well, and I think that's more to my point, was maybe not I or somebody in my immediate family got COVID-19, but I lived in the COVID world for the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a kind of trauma that we've all had to deal with, and some people are better equipped to handle that than others. That's absolutely true, you know, and we have, all we have to do is go back to think of our own experience about it. You know, it's easy to sort of think, you know, at the first moments of it, oh, great, I get to work from home. But, you know, um, uh, there's people that were very envious of the people that got to, you know, the essential workers that got to go into work every day. We all need structure. We all need environment. We all need interaction. And the loss of a lot of that, even though sometimes... You know, we get caught up in doing a lot in our life, and it might feel appealing for a few days. We all need that, and you know, and sort of the satisfaction of you know being out there and getting a job done. And many people lost that, and they lost the satisfaction and the gratification that went along with that. The website is rosecrans.org. They say life's waiting, and I think it's been waiting for about eighteen months for people to get back to normal. So I'm glad we had a chance to have this conversation with Dr. Tom Wright, M.D., the psychiatrist and addictionologist. Rosecrans's chief medical officer. And from the Griffin Williamson campus, Dr. Adrian Adams, MD, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. I, it was a wonderful experience. Thanks okay. for having us. This is On Your Radar. Back to school in the new normal. 
podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. With over 60 locations throughout Chicagoland, northern and central Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, help is just a click or call away. Go to rosecrans.org or call 866-830-8729 for more guidance and information. Rosecrans, life's waiting. Thank you.